1: Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books in Law podcast. We are joined today by Michael Bobelian. He is the author of a new book entitled Battle for the Marble Palace, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court. Mr. Bobelian covers the Supreme Court as a contributing writer at Forbes.com. This is his second book, his first book was about the Armenian genocide entitled Children of Armenia, and that was published in 2009. But this is the new book that it was published in 2019. And Mr. Bobelian, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Law. Thank you for having me, and It's a pleasure to be here. So this, as the subtitle indicates, is about uh, Abe Fortas and the Supreme Court. Um, can you explain what your motivation was in uh, revisiting the topic of Abe Fortas's nomination?
0: Right. Great question. So years ago, I was looking through a website. It was actually on the official uh, Senate, U.S. Senate website, and it listed all the Supreme Court nominees um, chronologically dating back to George Washington. And I was just scrolling through it very casually And I noticed um, throughout the 20th century, almost everyone nominated and confirmed very quickly because it had the date of the nomination and the date of the confirmation. And sometimes it would be within weeks, sometimes within days. One of them uh, in the mid-40s, a nominee was confirmed in a single day. And having grown up uh, remembering the Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas nominations, and then obviously uh, this is the, before the more recent ones, but even just remembering those, I said to myself, wow, that's strange. How come things were moved along so quickly? And so I kept scrolling through the list, and I also noticed one other anomaly. And in the, in the section of this chart on the website, it would tell you how people got uh, confirmed. And it had a V next to most of the nominees. And I said, I, I don't know what that is. So I scrolled down to the footnotes and the V stood for a voice vote where the Senate basically in a casual way says, everyone in favor, say yay, everyone and say nay. Uh, and I said, wow, that's really astonishing. They didn't have a roll call vote. So I started looking at that. And then you get to Abe Portiss nomination to become chief justice in 1968. And he was already an associate justice. He had been confirmed in 65. vote. 68. Um. His confirmation lasts several months. Um, He is uh, ultimately a a target of a filibuster. And if you look at all the nominations afterwards, he kind of set the template for what happened afterwards. And we could talk about it later, but all the way the the consequences that we live with to this day. So just looking at that chart and seeing very visually in a very quick way how there was sort of uh, a, pre-biblical flood, if you will, and a post-biblical flood, Uh, Fortis' nomination in '68 was kind of the divergent point in the Supreme Court's history in how we vet and nominate and consider and ultimately confirm uh, Supreme Court nominees. So you're arguing that basically
1: our understanding of how the nomination process has become politicized doesn't, of course, begin with the 1987 nomination of Robert Bork by Ronald Reagan, but rather we should look back to the 1960s to see the roots of the politicization of the nomination process. Is that
0: right? That's absolutely right. That was the revolution, the nomination process. That's when it became hyper-politicized. Look, the Supreme Court's always been a political body. So there's always been some politics in this. So it's not a matter of everyone was acting like uh, platonic uh, angels, right? And all of a sudden they, they all became hyper-political, hyper-partisan, hyper-ideological. Oh, but there's a clear demarcation. There's a clear point where the current system that we live in really uh, was born in, in 1968 with Fortas. And, um, and what took place before was so far less politicized, so far less partisan, and so far less ideological. So... That is clearly the argument, and we could, and we could talk about why it's kind of been forgotten and why the Bork nomination uh, is so popular in the co- uh, in the sort of the conventional vis- wisdom and, and it remains in the popular consciousness. But uh, it was really the Fortis nomination that changed things, and uh, and like I said, we could talk about why that is uh, as we go forward. I want to address all of those questions, uh, but
1: first I want to talk about setting the scene historically in 1968 when this nomination is made. This is a nomination not to the court, but rather to the chief justice position. And Fortas, in fact, is already on the court. He's been on the court since 1965. So in in your book, what you do is the, you set up, um, uh, in some ways, uh, we could call them flashbacks, but basically you talk about Uh, The historical development of the politicization of what became known as the Warren Court. Of course, we, as all listeners will um, sure be familiar with the fact, we refer to courts by the names of the chief justice at the time. Right. And you talk about the history in the 1950s and even before then a bit about how the Warren Court uh, politically had been received by the country. And then you uh, flash forward, of course, to the um, nomination in 1968. Let's talk about the historical setting of 68. What's going on? This nomination does not obviously happen in a vacuum. What else is occurring that you think is important in regard to how this nomination is received?
0: Right. Uh, specifically in 1968, uh, the political dynamics are such that in March of that year, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, announces that he's not going to run for re-election. So, he's drained of a lot of his political power because of that. Offer carrots and, 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 uh, and threaten people with, uh, with sticks, right? Polit- political threats and political uh, favors, if you will, because he's in the last months of his presidency. Plus, by then, especially with the Vietnam War raging, he has lost his liberal support in the Senate. So he nominates Fortas in late June of 68, really at the weakest point of his presidency. Um, at the same time, you have an election. Everyone knows it's going to be close. Republicans are desperate for a victory, and they're desperate to change the Warren court. Uh, and, and this is sort of the bigger dynamic of not just what happened in 68, but what happened ever since Earl Warren became chief justice back in 1953. Warren court was largely remembered for Brown v. Board and the criminal procedure rulings, um, probably Miranda being the most uh, popular, right, with the Miranda warnings you hear on every police procedural TV show. Uh, But the fact was that it angered large parts of the American population over civil rights, that was largely in the South, over the criminal procedure rulings. Uh, But it also ended uh, prayer in schools, in public schools, that was the most unpopular ruling of the Warren Court, and that was in 1962. It ended um, political uh, gerrymandering, where uh, you had uneven or malapportioned legislative districts, where one congressional district might have 100,000 people and another one might have 800,000 people. Same thing for state legislative district. And that upset a lot of the uh, politicians in the country. Um, it uncensored uh, erotica from Victorian-minded censors. Right in the 1960s, you have the sexual revolution, and Playboy magazine is the is the second most subscribed magazine of the era. But you still have large segments of the population who are against uh, pornography. And in the 50s, in, in a little-known series of cases, it kind of put an end to McCarthyism. People think of McCarthyism as McCarthy's fall, but the fact was a lot of McCarthy's tactics and the abusive acts of the government continued after Joseph McCarthy's demise. And the Supreme Court in 1956, 57, and 58 kind of put an end to the more abusive and constitutional tactics that the government was, uh, was using at the time. So it generated all of these enemies uh, in what, is now, what we now call American conservatives. Um, and they constantly attacked the Warren Court. In the South, there was widespread disobedience with ground reward and desegregation, right? Uh, We all know Little Rock, but it continued well beyond that. Uh, People tried to pass legislation where they undid the court's rulings, tried to pass constitutional amendments, its rulings. At one point, they even tried to amend the constitution through a constitutional convention. Now, I'm a lawyer, I went to law school, and the only constitutional convention I remembered was the Constitutional Convention of the 1780s, right, in Philadelphia. But there's a mechanism that can be used. It never has been used, but it can be used to amend the Constitution, and the court's enemies fell one state shy of initiating that process. So have all this uh, anger and fury directed at the Warren Court. We have all these attempts to curb the court, to undermine the court, to neutralize its rulings, and because they're so radical in nature, because they would so undo the constitutional order that we had, it fell just short. And finally, all of these uh, conservatives who despise the war in court, they come to the realization that the only way to really control the Supreme Court is not through this legislation, not through the angry speeches, which they made you know, th- hundreds, if not thousands of, not through uh, the disobedience, which you saw in the South but by controlling the court's members. And they first really implement the strategy in 1968 against Fortas. And that's why it turns out to be such a tumultuous uh, confirmation fight.
1: So you've recounted the context in which this nomination occurs, but one of the questions that stood out to me was the fact that Fortas is already on the court and his nomination, talk about briefly, how did the nomination to the court in 1965 uh, proceed? And in explaining that also, I think it would be helpful to explain Fortas' background and relationship to LBJ.
0: Right. So LBJ um, in 1965, he's just won a landslide uh, election over Barry Goldwater, and it's at the height of his powers. He's about to they pass the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, or you know, the monumental civil rights bills of that era. And now he's about to undertake the, the great society, right? Medicare, Medicaid, hundreds of education and environmental bills and so on. But LBJ, um, it was this masterful politician, right? And he realized that his legislation would be tested in the courts. And he wanted uh, stout liberals who would defend that legislation and continue the Warren court's legacy. Um, so he wanted Abe Fortas, who was his longtime friend, a lawyer, and political advisor, and they had g- gone back all the way to the 1940s, their relationship. Uh, he wanted Fortas on the court. Plus, Fortas was considered uh, a brilliant lawyer. Um, in legal circles, uh, a really good lawyer is called a lawyer's lawyer. And Fortas was so renowned, he was called a lawyer's lawyer's lawyer. Um, one of his colleagues called him a, a brain surgeon, the person you called in when all else failed. So he was liberal. He was close to LBJ. He was brilliant. So LBJ yeah. wanted him. Uh, oh, yeah. Let me interrupt
1: you one second before we talk about the sixty-five nomination itself. Uh, I think it's uh, it struck me just how close they were. In other words, a lot of people in Washington call each other friends, and they've known each other for years. But Fortas and LBJ truly were close, intimate friends. They they really were very close um, in, in a way that you, perhaps you don't often see in Washington, especially at the at the upper echelon of political power. Correct?
0: A- absolutely, because. You know they, they socialized regularly. Their wives, met each other uh, well. They dine at each other's homes. Uh. So in terms of social a social relationship, they were very close. Fortas was uh, LBJ's, like I said, personal lawyer. He was his political advisor. So when JFK was assassinated, Fortas came up with the idea for the Warren Commission to investigate the assassination. He helped write LBJ's first speech. Uh, soon after the assassination. So he was this political advisor. He was a speechwriter. He helped draft legislation. Uh, he dealt with political issues that came up. Uh, he dealt with scandals that came up. He was also LBJ's fixer. And at the same time, you said they were really genuine friends. It wasn't just a professional relationship where, you know, one is helping the other. Uh, it was There was a, general, a genuine uh, friendship there as well.
1: Okay, so in 1965, we have got this nomination. That um, how's it received when Fortas is uh, first nominated to the court? This is for an associate justice position. A Fortas is going to be replacing one of the liberals on the court, uh, Arthur Goldberg.
0: And so, what is uh, how's this received? Right. So it's received pretty much the same way that most nominations had been received up to that time. Uh, the Senate really had hands-off role. I'm not going to say they rubber-stamped uh, nominees, but Close to something like that. They didn't run background checks. There were no ideological litmus tests. Uh, the hearings tended to be very short. So Fortis in 65 is emblematic of that model uh, uh, that, that dominated the nomination process. So his hearings last three hours. He's basically thrown softballs, which you know he can easily answer. Um, and like I said, there were no litmus tests, background checks, or anything like that. And he's confirmed in two weeks— through a voice vote. So it's very quick, it's very uncontroversial, and it's very, like I said, uh, reflective of how most people were vetted and confirmed uh, throughout most of the 20th century. So here was
1: a historical conundrum for me when I was, uh, partly as I was reading your book, but it had been a question that predated encountering your book. Why is it that Fortas is nominated almost pro forma and approved? by the Senate pro forma. And then a mere three years later, he is essentially filibustered and um, rejected, uh, not just by the Senate, but also, you know, ultimately uh, publicly in terms of public opinion. And so why would this, uh, why the contrast in this short amount of
0: time? Right. Well, one one of the reasons is, what I had mentioned briefly earlier, the Warren court's critics and its enemies its rivals came to the realization after fortas joined the court and around 1967-68 this is not just a uh like a light bulb went off but it, they came to this gradual realization that you know the only way we can really control the court is to control its membership so they had didn't they didn't come to that realization yet in 1965 they came to that realization by 1968 and you could see Strom Thurman, uh, Sam Irvin. These were a couple of the leading uh, senators who opposed Fortas in 68. They make this very clear in their public statements, in their writings. Okay, so, so that's one reason why it changed so dramatically. And then the other reason is, 1965, LBJ is at the height of his political power. As I said, he had a landslide election, and by 1968, he was um, very unpopular in the polls Uh, Conservatives disliked him. uh, But his his liberal base in the Senate also disliked him because of the Vietnam War. And because he wasn't running for re-election, he had lost a lot of his political capital. So had Fortas' enemies tried this in 65, I think they knew well that they were not going to succeed. LBJ was too powerful at the time. But by 68, they now have a weakened presidency. They see that the liberals on the Senate are on the defensive, especially because there's an election coming. And so, and as I said, they come to this realization that they should really go after the courts membership. You put those three things together, a combination of new strategic thinking as well as uh, political opportunity because of LBJ's uh, weakness, uh, lack of political capital in 68 versus 65. You put all those forces together, and that's what's so diametrically different. Ford is getting confirmed so easily in 65 to Ford is getting filibustered in 68.
1: And so this is a much more liberal court in 68. Uh, You've got the, um, in 65, you have the kind of a five-four split on the court, as I would read it. Uh, Earl Warren, Hugo Black, William O. Douglas, William Brennan, and uh, the retiring Arthur Goldberg, they make up the liberal block that is all predating LBJ's appointments. And then you've got on the, I, I don't even know if you can really call it a conservative block, but it's a, it's a moderate block of um, uh, Clark and um, Byron White, Tom Clark, that is right. uh, Byron White, uh, John Marshall Harlan, and of course Potter Stewart. And it's a court that's, you know, really changed before 65. you know, uh, is retired and Frankfurter's retired. Uh, Those are moderate to conservative by that point. By the time they retire, they're considered that way. And and so it's a court that's obviously changing. And it was just somewhat surprising to me that the those who would resist uh, the leftward drift of the what was already a leftward uh, from a conservative perspective court in 65, Hadn't learned the lessons that you would have seen, for example, with the changes in personnel made by Franklin Roosevelt. In other words, the courts, obviously its personnel is important to the shape of the law, not just on federal power as it was in the New Deal, but in regard to individual liberty uh, and, uh, the expansion of rights as it already is in 1965. So that was still a bit of a conundrum to me about why the lesson, so to speak, that they seem to think they've learned in 68 hasn't been learned in 65. Do you think that five, four split was a difference? Because in 68, by then you've got, um, Thurgood Marshall that's been added to that liberal block. So it's more of a six to three split with Fortas being included. Right. And White and Harlan and Stewart are are even a smaller minority at that point. So um, it, this seems to be a lesson they should have learned even before Fortas was nominated as an associate. What do you make of it?
0: Right. That? No. Look, and I think I think they were learning it as as time was going. And and I'll give you, I'll give you two examples as to why just three years made a difference. Um, as I had mentioned, the the court in 1962 ended. Uh, prayer in public schools. It said school districts are no longer allowed to have prayers in public schools. And that was a very widespread practice in America, dating back to colonial times. And as I said, it was the most unpopular ruling of the Warren court. It received um, the most uh, hate mail, if you will, because of that ruling. And then you have the apportionment rulings where starting in 1962, in a, a similar ruling called Baker v. Carr, and, and then others that followed, that said all legislative districts, both congressional as well as state legislative districts, pretty much have to have the same number of people. And it came up with the one person, one vote principle. So Everett Dirksen, who was a Senate minority leader, tried to pass constitutional amendments to undo, to overrule uh, those two rulings. He tried in the early 60s and it fell just short. He tried in the mid 60s again. just short. And then he tried through this mechanism of a constitutional convention, which kind of was coming to a head in early 68. And again, fell one state short of starting the constitutional convention process. So, and he's just one example of uh, the Warren court's critics, of people who are trying to, as I said, neutralize or undercut the court, and they keep trying throughout the 1950s, but as well as the early to mid to late 60s, and they see that it keeps failing. It keeps falling sometimes just one vote short, which is what was the case in the 50s with legislation dealing with uh, the court's jurisdiction. And so something starts to to click, 67, 68, that just didn't click earlier, that, you know what, all these other attempts to neutralize the Warren court are falling short. And when you combine that, as I said, with LBJ's political weakness, which wasn't the case in 65, that's what really leads to that sudden shift in just the three-year period. Uh, so so that was my best understanding of why 68 and why not why not earlier? Why not with Thurgood Marshall when he got nominated uh, just a year or two earlier? Why not with Fortis in 65? Those, two, to me, are the two things that kind of click in 1968 that hadn't really clicked in people's minds uh, in earlier years.
1: Also, there's um, – and I don't want to – get ahead of the story. I know we're going to mention the Bork nomination later, but, uh, one thing that occurred to me, was a similar kind of conundrum, which is why does everyone resist the appointment of Robert Bork? Why is there so much, uh, resistance to that publicly and popularly, but next to none regarding Antonin Scalia only the year before, who was, who was no closet conservative, um, and so uh, one explanation, of course, that has been proffered uh, by historians, and I'm curious what you think about this, is that essentially um, Scalia was replacing, it was a conservative replacing the conservative, so the character of the court wasn't changing. Whereas with Robert Bork, you actually do have the change from Powell, who's no flaming liberal, but moderate, um, uh, and with Bork being the addition there. In other words, um, something of a more clearly conservative replacing something of a moderate and and that being the difference between the Scalia appointment, seemingly the same kind of justice that Bork would have been, uh, not getting as much resistance. And of course, uh, uh, this happens after the all of the fights of the '60s over the Fortas nomination. So, what do you think of that notion of that the balance of the court itself really seems to be changing with uh, Fortas's uh, elevation to chief justice, and that that's going to pave the way for uh, a kind of a uh, much more instantiated, um, substantial Warren in Court into the future?
0: Yes, uh, the. Had Fortas been confirmed as chief justice, it would not have changed the ideological makeup of the court. As you said, it was 6-3 uh, in favor of liberals. But with Earl Warren retiring, Fortas was seen as as a perpetuation of Warren in terms of his ideological heir. So conservatives said, oh, my goodness, not only is it going to continue to be a court dominated by liberals, a 6-3, but now Fortas, who's much younger than, than Warren— he might serve another 15, 20 years. He's going to perpetuate that for another generation, if you will. So it wasn't so much unlike Bork, where, you, as you said correctly, there's going to be a, a change in ideology of the court. It's more as in as if the mindset that Fortas will now perpetuate the liberal ideology for many years to come. Whereas if, Warren, if he's not confirmed and Warren retires, which is actually what happened, and a Republican replaces him, well, now not only does it go from 6-3 liberal to 5-4 liberal, but you don't have that 6-3 cemented in place for many years to come. Um, so, so that was the, the thinking. And if you look at the, the justices in 68, Brennan went on to serve for decades longer. Thurgood Marshall went on to serve for decades longer. Uh, Hugo Black and William Douglas older, and they, they both retired within a few years, Uh, But Fordist also would have gone on to serve for many more years. He he passed away in 1982. So so a part of the thinking was, well, let's not get in a person who's going to replace Earl Warren who's going to be there for another 10, 20, uh, 30 years. Uh, So so that was the the mindset and uh, not just the ideology but the future ideology and how long will it stay in place.
1: Okay, so let's move to the um, stage where – LBJ nominates Fortas for the chief justice in 68. And LBJ, of course, uh, as you know, he's a lame duck at this point. And that in and of itself uh, perhaps encourages resistance. But what's the character of the resistance? Uh, Who are the resistors, if you will? And uh, what seems to be their motives? Are they all the same or are they
0: different? So the the two main resistance groups are... Southern Democrats, and at the time, almost all Southern politicians on the national level were Democrats. So you have Strom Thurmond, James Eastland, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee out of Mississippi, you have Sam Irvin out of North Carolina, um, and, and many other Southern Democrats. They opposed the Warren Court largely because of Brown v. Board and its civil rights rulings, but also because of Miranda and school prayer and all these other issues that i mentioned earlier so that's one contingent and that's about 20 senators and then you have uh, uh republicans right it's an election year and you have about 33 34 republicans and at the time the parties were more um ideologically diverse. You had conservative Democrats like the Southern Democrats. You also had liberal Democrats. Likewise, you had conservative Republicans like, let's say, Ronald Reagan, but you also had more moderate or liberal Democrats like, uh, sorry, Republicans like Nelson Rockefeller or Jacob Javits out of New York. So, uh, but Republicans at the time, they also saw, um, they were critics of the Warren court, not as heavily as the Southern Democrats, but they saw this as a political opportunity. They knew the election was only months away, they were pretty confident that a Republican could win 1968 election. So in their minds, they said to themselves, "Wait a minute! If we just hold this off for a few months, and our person wins the election, they didn't know whether it was going to be Nixon, you know, Rockefeller yet was going to be the candidate. Uh, but they said either way, get new Chief Justice uh, from a Republican president. So why not oppose the this nomination? So those were the two Camps: the Southern Democrats, like I said, largely because of civil rights and very ideological basis for their opposition, and then Republicans in the Senate, largely out of more uh, political and partisan uh, motivations, those two camps got together to oppose uh, to oppose uh, uh, Abe fortas and one Republican in particular that
1: you mentioned who's there seemingly from the beginning shortly after the nomination is someone who I was not familiar with at all, uh, Robert Griffin. Can you explain his role?
0: Yes. Yeah, so Robert Griffin was a freshman senator out of Michigan, and he was not particularly conservative. He had actually, when he was in the House, he had voted for uh, civil rights legislation. But he was a bit of a maverick, and he saw the nomination. He thought there was a, there was a fix going on. Uh, he suspected, and he was right, that Earl Warren had timed his resignation so that LBJ, rather than the next president, would pick Warren's successor. So, and he said to himself, "Wait a minute, that's not that's not how this should be done. Uh, Supreme Court uh, justices should not get to time their resignations or their retirement in that way." Right? And and we see this happen happen to modern day as well. You know, it's no coincidence. I think that certain justices retire at a certain time when a certain type of precedent in power. And I'm not going to name names, but I think this happens to this day. But, but Griffin was very off-put by that. And he also came to the realization that that I said earlier, where he saw also that the Senate had been largely rubber stamping his nominees. And it had put very little scrutiny on who was nominated and how they were vetted. So part of his motivation was simply a matter of institutional a power and institutional role because under the Constitution the Senate is supposed to advise and consent it's supposed to really scrutinize uh, Supreme Court nominees so he said wait a minute the Senate has really given up a lot of its authority in this arena and he wanted to resurrect the Senate's role in the confirmation process so part of it was his understanding of the Constitution the different branches are supposed to play In the selection of Supreme Court justices, part of it was uh, he was off-put by what he saw as a political arrangement between Earl Warren and LBJ so that Warren would retire at a certain time and LBJ would pick a successor. And part of it was politics, right? He's a Republican. He's a Democrat. He, too, wanted uh, a Republican president to pick Earl Warren's successor. So the three things that motivated him, what was so surprising politically was at the time, Freshman senators kept their mouths shut. Back row uh, in the Senate, they listened to their party elders. They listened to the leadership within the parties, and they really didn't disobey them. And and Griffin ended up doing that because Everett Dirksen, who was the Senate minority leader, the head of the Republicans at the time, he was very close to LBJ. He had day on uh, civil rights bills throughout the '60s, and he supported Fortas. So Griffin basically. Uh, started a mutiny, and he got uh, close to 20 Republicans on his side to disobey the minority leader, Everett Dirksen. So he was a real uh, maverick at the time to be able to pull that off, especially when the Senate was a very hierarchical institution at that time compared to what it is now.
1: Okay. And so he had been um, uh, elected in uh, 66, is that right? Or he was... Okay. Yes.
0: Yes, he, he had been in the House. He had been elected to the Senate in 66. So he was a freshman senator in, uh, in 68. Yeah, in, in other words,
1: he's not up for re-election at this time in
0: 68. So there's no
1: pressure on him from the right to become more right wing. In other words, it seems to me that your institutional explanation, his his sense of, quote unquote, integrity of the role of the Senate in this process, this constitutional process of uh, advising consent for these nominations is seems to pre- perhaps be more of a motivating factor than mere what we would think of today as partisan uh, gamesmanship.
0: A- absolutely. And and if you look at some of the statements he makes, both in speeches and he, and he ends up testifying as well before the Senate Judiciary Committee, he makes some very profound statements where he says, you know, the Senate has given up its constitutional duties here and it's time it stepped up because it plays Half the role; its role in this process is as important as the president's, and he confirms what was my initial insight, where we started our interview, that the Senate had largely given up that role. So this institutional prerogative, this institutional resurrection, is a very big part of his motivation. And and even though that's been largely been forgotten to history, his understanding of what the Senate's role should be. Has largely become the norm ever since.
1: And so let me ask you what you think about that as a historian. Um, in other words, I want to ask you to make what some historians are reluctant to do, which is make a moral judgment on this, if you will. Uh, do you think that Griffin's approach, not necessarily in regard to Fortas's nomination per se, but rather his institutional argument about the role that he thinks the Senate should play? Uh, vis-a-vis the executive in the selection of justices. This is all three branches coming together at this moment. Uh, and so do you think that that is a uh, morally praiseworthy uh, argument that he's making? In other words, is that a, a good development that Griffin is urging, or is it um, something that's uh, merely allowing for more partisan gamesmanship of polarization and the difficulties that we've seen ever since regarding how nominations are conducted?
0: Right. That's a great question, Ian. So I'm going to say from a philosophical standpoint, theoretical standpoint, I think it's a very morally praiseworthy position because that's what the founders intended. And that's how the system was designed. Now, that being said, it can, of course, be exploited. It can be misused. It can be abused. And it doesn't always work out the way we want. But that is the Senate's role. It is supposed to scrutinize. We're not supposed to have a system where the president simply picks the justices he wishes and, and gets his way no matter what. Uh, so I think his resurrection of the Senate's historic constitutional role, again, assuming that people do it the right way, is very valid. Um, and, and here I wanted to draw a distinction between the Senate's confirmation role when it comes to ju- Supreme Court justices and other federal judges versus cabinet members. When it comes to cabinet members, there I think they could be more deferential to a president. Because a cabinet member is part of the executive branch, and that cabinet member works intimately with the president, right? So the president wants to pick people that he he's going to like, right, that he can work with. Uh, likewise, cabinet members don't have lifetime tenure. They retire or when the president you know, is out of office, they're out of office, right? So cabinet members, I feel the Senate, in its same advi- consent and advisory role, can be far more deferential to the president. But a judge, and especially a Supreme Court justice, well, they have lifetime tenure. They're a separate branch of the government. They're not part of the executive branch. There, I think, absolutely right that the Senate should play a much more prominent role. It should take its job much more seriously. Now, again, that got abused. That got um, taken to new partisan heights. And and we have the mess that we've had in in, in recent years. But on a philosophical constitutional basis, I think his point is absolutely valid.
1: All right. So um, it seems to me that there are uh, a paucity of heroes in your book. Um, uh, <laughs> nobody seems to come out smelling like a rose, least of all Abe Fortas himself. Um, can you explain how these hearings uh, occurred and some of the problems that were, uh, I will say, developed but and arose through the hearings? Um how, how that process occurred and um, Fortas's role in particular in it.
0: Right. Well, as I said, the, the hearings up to that time had often been very short. Any look at FDR had nominated nine justices and combined together, the hearings for all nine justices were shorter than the hearings for Abe Fortas. So that gives you some context as to just how long these hearings were. And a few things that came out during those hearings that really hurt him. One was people accused him of being LBJ's crony. As we had discussed earlier, they were really close. And they all knew that in 1965 that these two men were close. Problem for Fortas was that relationship didn't change even after he joined the court. So it's one thing when he's a private lawyer, political advisor to LBJ, but when he's off the court... It's another thing to maintain that same relationship when, when he's on the court. So I'll give you a few examples. They met um, over 80 times in person during the three years that he was an associate justice. Uh, he helped write speeches, like for the Detroit riots. He helped write uh, legislation. He even gave the White House advice on uh, legal issues that would come before the Supreme Court. At one point, a senator had called the White House to inquire about legislation, and he was told by the operator I'm quoting this, the president is away, but Mr. Justice Fortas is here and he's managing the bill for the White House. So they were just way too close and, and no one, no president and no justice has had that kind of relationship ever since. So th- this accusation of cronyism was absolutely right and I think it was very valid, but there is one minor defense for Fortas and that is that also quite typical up to that time. Uh, again, dating back to George Washington, to FDR, Harry Truman, justices and presidents sometimes had very uh, close relationships. They would uh, play poker together. Truman and Chief Justice Fred Vincent would spend a lot of time on Truman's uh, presidential yacht together. So it wasn't the relationship that was abnormal when looked at from a historical perspective, but when looked at from a perspective of separation of powers and ethics, it it was it was definitely uh, unseemly in that regard. So that was but one thing. But it's also I I'm was sorry to
1: interrupt you. But it's also, of course,
0: Fortis himself
1: engages in what we could call a cover up <laughs> by saying, "Oh, I only seldom have met with him ever since I've been on the court." And so it's not merely Fortis isn't saying, yes, this is he's not forthrightly uh, putting it out to public scrutiny, saying, yes, this is my relationship. It's historically not unusual. I play. I have been close as a friend and advisor. I'm going to continue to be that way. He's he. In other words, he dissembles and, and
0: you could frankly say he lies. Right. Yes. Yes. I, and, and people in the White House who were working on the nomination are very um, troubled. By his testimony. Um, and some of them say, you know, if he didn't lie, then he came to the closest possible to lying. Yeah, he, so he was very evasive. You're absolutely right. And he was dishonest in how he portrayed the truth. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. Now, they didn't really know that at the time. These are things that we find out after the fact. So when he's testifying that, no, 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 they weren't really close, uh, the people at the time, the senators as well as the public at large, don't really realize how much he's distorting right. the truth. No, he's not uh, challenged. He's right. not
1: really challenged. He's not called on these uh, uh, right. evasions.
0: I mean, they do a little bit, but they don't They didn't know as much as we know after the fact because we have access to archival record that, you know, is not available in 1968. So, so he's challenged just a little bit, but not the way that if they had known what we know now, you know, as historians, wow, he really could have been challenged uh, during his testimony. Okay.
1: So, uh, and I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking about uh, how during the, um, uh, one of the issues that came up was cronyism. Of course, there's more than just cronyism. This is, uh, this is an, as you noted earlier, an ideological battle. So explain how that played a role in the hearings as well.
0: Right. So, Fortis becomes the target for all the built up uh, hatred and resentment of the Warren court. So, all the civil rights rulings, the criminal procedure rulings, the school prayer rulings, the malapportionment rulings, all these things that for the most part preceded Fortas's arrival on the Warren Court in 1965. These rulings were mostly in the early 60s and the 50s. He becomes the target for all of those, like I said, years of displeasure with the Warren Court. So, people are constantly bashing him during his testimony about Miranda, about school prayer, about civil rights, and so on. So. All of that resentment now becomes the sponge for it. And, and that's not his fault, but he's the only target available to them because they can't reach Earl Warren, right? They're, the true target for the Southern Democrats is Earl Warren, but he's out of their reach. So here's his heir apparent. Here's his ideological heir. We're going to attack him instead. So th- there's that. And now this was done in a general way. Like I said, these kinds of different areas of the law were were heavily condemned throughout Fortas' testimony. Strom Thurmond found a way to really ignite interest in the public, and he used pornography. Um, so pornography in the 60s was a kind of culture war issue, um, Playboy was the second most subscribed magazine of the era, Hugh Hefner had become a household name, that polls showed that about three-quarters of Americans opposed pornography in their communities. So. I don't want to get into the legalities of it, but it was a very difficult and nuanced First Amendment issue for the court to determine when does uh, a person's First Amendment rights to hate pornography end and and how much power should a community have to uh, prohibit uh, pornography, whether through magazines or films, in their communities. And it was a very difficult balancing act, but Thurman wasn't one for nuance. So what he did during the hearings was – he invited Charles Keating. Uh, people will remember him from the savings and Loan scandal, but way before that, in the 1960s, Keating was the head of the leading anti-pornography group of the day. So Keating and another person from this uh, organization testified and they blame the court for the pornography. They say that the court to the moral decay of the country, right? So if you're a traditional conservative at the time, you're seeing pornography, you're seeing... Uh, hippies. You're seeing flower children, right? You're seeing students, student activists, civil rights activists. To so a lot of American conservatives at the time, country's going to hell. And Charles Keating blames the court for this uh, predicament. Uh, but Thurman doesn't stop there. Uh, the White House is caught off guard by by this testimony about pornography. So they send Warren Christopher. Uh, he'll sound familiar because he was a uh, Secretary of State under Bill Clinton. But at the time, he was he was the number two person at the Department of Justice. So Warren Christopher testifies before the Judiciary Committee to kind of explain these constitutional nuances, right? To say, hey, the Warren court is not pro-pornography. It's pro-First Amendment, and it has to do this balancing act between the First Amendment and community rights and so on. Again, Strom Thurmond isn't one for nuances. All Warren Christopher is testifying. Thurmond had food magazines. On while he's sitting uh, you know, at the dais and the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he's flipping through them. But Thurman doesn't stop there. He goes to the Judiciary Committee and he says, you know, we should broadcast some of these pornographic films at the court to save some s- from censors. So censor boards throughout the country would block a film broadcast at a local theater, right? and a filmmaker or the film's uh, uh, distributor and ultimately that appeal would make its way to the Supreme Court and sometimes the court would rule for the pornographer, sometimes it would rule for the censor board. So Thurman said, why don't we watch some of these movies? At first the Judiciary Committee said, no, you're crazy, we're not going to do that. Anyway he found a a room he got a coin-operated projector and they didn't even have, it wasn't a proper theater room, there was no screen, so he projected this movie uh, right onto a wood-paneled wall Uh, and it became uh, it started this um, uh, this process where now more than a couple of dozen movies were aired throughout a six, seven week process and it was called the Fortis Film Festival so it'd be like, oh, what movie are we yeah. going to watch this Thursday night? Right, so it became kind of like this dark comedy and, and you chuckled and, and and that's sort of how people responded to it, uh, but it really undermined Fortis' candidacy in the public and and you start to see the public opinion polls in the beginning when he was nominated are way in his favor confirmation and this issue really starts to take that uh, take those polls downward. And at the end he's labeled Mr. Obscenity. Right. in other words, it, this is
1: really we laugh at it, yes, but uh, this is rather
0: shrewd on the part of Thurman. yes. and also what it does is it delays a quick confirmation. So uh, Fortas is nominated in in late June of sixty eight. LBJ realizes that they have to get him confirmed as soon as possible because once the election gets really heated up in September, October, November, you know the the senators don't want to be there. The ones running for re-election want to be back in their home states, right? So he knows he has to get this through. So part of what Thurman is doing by making these uh, by making the hearings last so long, by having the this film festival throughout July and August, is to also delay. A quick confirmation. And the longer it's delayed, the closer we get to the election, the more likely people are to say, you know what? We waited this long. Why don't we just wait until after the election, see who's elected, and let that person nominate Earl Warren's uh, successor? So so the, the strategy is very shrewd, like you said, because it changes public opinion, but it's also shrewd in that it's delaying the confirmation. And the closer we get to election day, the harder it is to make the argument that, no, LBJ and not the next president should, uh, should fill this post.
1: All right, so uh, what I wanna do is jump ahead to um, understanding this uh, con- confirmation battle historically. And um, obviously, uh, well, actually, before we do that, I, I do wanna know, there were a couple of actual minor scandals. The thing that seems to put the nail in the coffin for Fortas in his nomination to the chief justiceship in particular, is he taught this course uh, at American University I believe and it, it normally would have been paid upwards of which was even in 1968 a considerable sum of two thousand uh, dollars but instead he gets fifteen thousand for it and it was from a campaign contributor to the
0: Democrats is that right right it all, all right it was it was from his former corporate clients when he was in private practice uh, and it was set up by one of his former law partners and it was seen as as you said exactly why would someone get paid? That much more than the norm. Yes, he's a justice, so maybe a law school would pay him, you know, four thousand dollars instead of two thousand, right? Double the, the the compensation, but that much more, and then the fact that it was funded not by the law school but by former corporate clients, it was definitely ethically dubious because those clients were very large companies. They would inevitably have cases in the federal courts and and uh, likely the Supreme Court as well, so it was a very ethically dubious move. And the news of that was was released by Robert Griffin. He he was his office was tipped by someone at the university, and then he ultimately passed it on to Strom Thurmond, who was on the Judiciary Committee. So there you have Griffin and Thurmond working together. They unleashed this news in September, and it was the final. You know, I'm I'm going to use a cliche, but it was the final nail in the coffin, uh, because then. You've had the cronyism, you've had the Fortas Film Festival, and now you get this actual genuine ethical ethically dubious behavior, right Re- much more dubious than the cronyism in a way. Uh, and it really just ends whatever last hope that Fortas had to overcome the filibuster. and in October one, they have the vote. The filibuster prevails, and the nomination. Dies.
1: And of course Fortas he could have stayed on the court as an associate justice, but another scandal shortly thereafter is revealed uh, with uh, Louis Wolfson, and um, can you explain that in brief?
0: Yes. So uh, a reporter in Life magazine starts to dig around and realizes that Fortas had briefly served on a nonprofit board uh, run by Wolfson, and Wolfson was a corporate raider, and he was one of the first corporate raiders in America, but he also... Uh, got convicted for securities violations um, and Fortis was paying Fortis $20,000 a year to basically sit on a board and do very little work. And so that was one, that was a very large payment. Two, it was going to continue for Fortis's entire life. And when he passed away, it would pass on to his wife. So again, if you're paying someone to serve on a board, why would you pay them into perpetuity, even after they did, they resigned from the board, even after they're dead, right? So it seemed very fishy, especially because Wilson had all these legal problems, and he did ask for help with those problems. And here I have to defend Fortis. he did not give him any help. He said, "No, that's that's crossing a line that I can't cross." But after the American University scandal, after the how his name reputation was tarnished, in sixty-eight. In May of 1969, when news of this comes out in Life magazine and then it's fed by the, the Nixon administration, he, there was so much pressure on Fortas that he ultimately resigns. And he's the first and only justice to resign under right.
1: And Fortas will eventually – his seat will be replaced by – or will taken by Nixon nominee uh, Harry Blackmun. And so uh, let's place this uh, historically as we wrap up. The um, we mentioned the Bork nomination uh, was part of your motive. In other words, you had seen uh, the nomination process. Essentially, uh, the watershed event seemed to be 1987, Robert Bork. But uh, the argument that you make is that this is really the watershed uh, moment. So, placing this historically, um, we have the uh, Carswell and Haynesworth um, uh, nominations under Nixon that are controversial. Do you think those nominations
0: would have gone through but for this fortas um event absolutely and and going back to that original timeline that I had said, so between eighteen ninety four and nineteen sixty seven there are forty six nominees to the court forty five are confirmed, and most of them two thirds of them through this voice vote that I had said where it's very informal, often with no hearings or very short hearings, starting with Fortas. You essentially have four rejections over a three-year period. You have Fordus being the only justice to resign under scandal. 1970, uh, the Nixon administration tries to replicate that model, and Gerald Ford and the Nixon administration team up to try to in, uh, impeach William Douglas, another one of the court's liberals. So you have this uh, a very steady institution, right? All of a sudden, you have four rejections in quick succession, you have one justice resign, another justice in, nearly impeached, and, and no justice had been impeached since 1805, so just to give you some context. So basically, the the it just explodes, right? All it, it, Everything is going to hell all of a sudden. So if you look at the Fortis nomination 68, yes, it sparked a revolution, but because immediately afterwards, that revolution continued, uh, it didn't become sort of an anomaly. It wasn't—you you wouldn't look at that chart again and say, oh— Someone got rejected in 1930. Fortas got rejected in 1968, and then the next one is Bork in '86. No, it's it's because it's Fortas, and then the Nixon nominees, and then like I said, then the resignation, then the attempted impeachment. All of it put together, you now have a hyper politicized court, and you now have the the foundation for what we saw with Merrick Garland and Neil Gorsuch, Jack Kavanaugh. Uh, and, and so on. So and Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas as well. So you you really have the succession of events. Fortas being the, the the thing that sparked it, but with the Nixon nominees and as I said, the resignation and so on, that really cements it into place. And uh, and that's the way they looked at nominees, uh, LBJ and Nixon created a new template for presidents to focus on ideology and to focus on how a nomination. Change one's political fortunes, which is something that presidents in the past paid some attention to, but not the way Nixon started to and not the way modern presidents do. Like we look at Donald Trump. Where he's basically saying, elect me and I'm going to pick this from this list of potential nominees and they're going to do your bidding. Right. That's what he's telling his, his, his supporters. But people didn't do that. FDR didn't do that in the 30s. No one really did that the way we do now. Nixon was the person who started that. And LBJ was the person to focus on ideology. Again, presidents had looked at ideology, but he's the first president to really look at it with the kind of scrutiny that presidents do now. So when you put it all together, you completely change how presidents uh, find nominees. You completely change how the Senate scrutinizes nominees. And it's the model that we live with, you know, some 50 years later now.
1: The book is entitled Battle for the Marble Palace. Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and The Forging of the Modern Supreme Court. And we've been joined today by its author, Michael Bobelian. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Law
0: podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Ian.